From understanding the news of today to explaining principles which will last a lifetime, you're listening to the Back 40 Leadership Podcast, equipping pastors and church leaders across rural America and beyond to meet the challenges of ministry while advancing the kingdom of God in your local community and in our world. I am here with Pastors Mel Massingale and Todd Stanley. Hello. Howdy. All right, let's just jump right in. So the cautionary theme of the book of Judges is a kind of cyclical disobedience from Israel as a consequence of their prosperity. The nation of Israel adheres to God's precepts until they become prosperous. Then they are deceived into believing they no longer need God, and so they disobey him. Their society falls because of the disobedience, and then God raises up a judge to rescue them. What are some of the most dangerous threats which face a church that is enjoying success and prosperity, and what about for individuals and pastors? I mean, I, I think it's the same kind of cycle. We Things are going well, and so then we... Uh, we either just fall into kind of a, a pattern of, of laziness or disregard for, the, you know, for God, uh, you know, kind of just put him on the back burner, or uh, we can elevate good things to an ultimate status, and they become idols in our heart, and then we begin to give our devotion and worship to other things. We can tend to syncretize, where it's like, you know, well, I want to I want to make sure that I give God praise, but also there's this thing, you know, it just, I think it's the same kind of pattern. And then we find ourselves um, in, you know, well, either a, a state of disrepair or um, distance from God, exiled, so to speak, spiritually, I think. So I think the pattern is very much the same. How it looks might be different given our modern context. Yeah, and you, uh, the statement you made kind of laid out this idea that this stuff happened because they prospered. And I don't think prosperity is the the key to that. I think the key to that is what do they do in their prosperity? And in their prosperity, uh, some of the things they did that helped them prosper, they stopped doing. Right. Um, and so I don't think prosperity or doing well or your church succeeding or personal success, any of those kind of things are necessarily a problem. I think those can be a good thing, but I have to think we have to be aware when the good things happen, when God blesses us, uh, we remember why God is blessing, that it's not because we're so talented or gifted that we've earned it, um, because then we stop doing the things that we know to do. And um, I think we've talked about it on this podcast before, but, you know, bad times create people whose hearts are very open to hearing the gospel yeah. and receptive to the word of God. And good times tend to create people who feel like God is unnecessary. And um, and the same is true for us. I was talking to one of our staff the other day, and we were talking about some projects we have coming up, and uh, he mentioned... Uh, I said, well, if you just win the Powerball, you can take care of that for us. And he laughed and he said, you know what? I've told my wife, you know, when it gets to a billion, we play it and we don't, you know, just we'll buy a couple of tickets, but you can't win if you don't play. And I said, what would you do with it? And he said, um, I think I'd give the church half of it. And I said, I think the church would receive that. Thank you very much. <laughs> and, and I told him, I said, you know what? I've, I've had friends that have been given like million dollar gifts and I've been like, Dang, I wish. God, come on. You could trust us, I promise. 
But I said, the problem with you giving us a $500 million gift, which would be fantastic, and we put it to use, is I, I said it would probably cause us to do some things differently, to get mm-hmm. lazy about some things. And I said, the, the reality is, if we had something like that, I, I would probably feel like I wouldn't need to trust God as much. Mm-hmm. Like, why would mm-hmm. I need to trust God? I can take care of this myself. And I think that's what tends to happen whenever we have any measure of success in any area of our lives. We tend to think, I don't need God. I've got this. I mean, look what I've built. Look what I've done. Look what people are saying, whatever it is. And uh, it, it really is a posture and condition of our own heart that begins to wither because we um, stop doing what we were doing in the first place, which was honoring God, walking in humility. So I think that's the key to all of it, whether it's personal or corporate as a church or whatever it might be, is just to continue to walk humbly and yeah. to trust God and to, to rely on him. Isn't it interesting how the good thing that God gives us can then take his place Mm -hmm. in our affections. For sure. Yeah, It's also interesting how people tend to make God irrelevant on both ends of the spectrum. So if Uh they're prosperous, then, oh, I don't need God. Mm -hmm. And if they're in dire straits, well, now I need a king because God's not good enough. I need someone who's here and present who can actually save me from this disaster. And it seems like faithlessness uh, manifests on both on ends, both yeah. ends mm-hmm. in that way. So as the leader of the organization, is there something that the pastor can do to prepare himself against taking that kind of um, godless mindset in the midst of prosperity? Say he's about to open a campus and it's just looking like the launch is going to do really well. Mm-hmm. All of the all of the chips are in place. Everything's lined up right. People are excited when they're uh, about to ride that high, are there specific things that he can do to prepare for it, or is that more of like a, a conviction of the Holy Spirit thing as they're as they're as you're walking through it? I think it's probably both. Probably both. Yeah. I think there's probably some things we can do, but I think, um, but I think that we have to rely on the Holy Spirit for that as well. Um, and I think about. You know, Todd and I were talking yesterday about just some disciplines I have to do to guard my own heart against certain things or certain attitudes or whatever it is. And I think there are some some disciplines we can take, especially if you're in a season of growth or a season of success. And I think one of the things that's important for us is that even though our church has grown over the years, I continually don't look at the growth. I continually try to look at the lost people in our county. And if our goal is to reach every per- lost person in our county, then we can pat ourselves on the back for what we've done, or we can look and see how um, how white the harvest is and that there is still so much work to do. And if I can keep my eyes focused on that kind of stuff, it makes it easier for me to, to, uh, <laughs> to just be a little more humble about everything. And the, and the truth is, man, um, our circles are very small, if this makes sense. Like, um, you, you might be really, really well known in a circle, but take one step outside that yeah. circle, and nobody has any clue who you are, and nobody's impressed by your stuff or your growth yeah. or your yeah. campuses. Or because there's a whole bunch of people in our church who have no idea who Craig Rochelle is. 
If yeah. I announced that Craig Rochelle was preaching this weekend at, at Summit Church, there would be a bunch of people who'd be like, I'd, I'd rather hear you, Pastor, uh, rather than the pastor of the largest church in America, because they don't care. And, you know, they're outside his circle. Right. And so if Craig Rochelle, you know, can experience that, or Stephen Frittick, or whoever famous Christian pastor you want to name can experience that, then who, who in the world am I, right? So Yeah, this is a unrelated question, but what you said sparked it. Um, do you think that when a person or, uh, or a thing is able to transcend those circles and break those circles, that that is a mark of a potential idol? Because I'm thinking about like the most famous people on earth and the most famous people on earth um, tend to be like, for instance, Donald Trump, I mm-hmm. think would probably be the most famous person on earth. Um, and and I'm not I think like Taylor I, Swift would be up there pretty high. She's pretty high. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. She's pretty high. Yeah. She's pretty high on my playlist too. So, oh. I'm just kidding. <laughs> she's not. <laughs> what era are you in, Mel? Era. Haha. Wow. This, the puns are flying. I have, I have to dodge them left and right. Um, anyway, that, that idea mm-hmm. of like, cause you, it's a good point you're making that our circles are small and outside of the circles. Um, there's anonymity, yeah. but it does seem like with some people, they, they're able to break those circles. And I wonder if that at least means that that person is susceptible to idolatry or if the idolatry is what makes them break, break the circle. Hmm. The fact that people idolize them causes them to oh, transcend man. the circles. Like, I don't, I don't think you have to break out of your circle to be no. caught up in that. Look no. there. Yeah. Like people's approval. Mm-hmm. or praise of me can mm-hmm. be an idol and it may only be one person yeah. that I'm really craving their approval yeah. and that's that's an idol right now it's a different scale than if mm-hmm. you know 7 billion people on the planet are talking about me <laughs> you know um but but man that idol is i mean we build those idols in our hearts yeah. no matter the scale i think hmm yeah, and and I really do think even Donald Trump, there are a lot of people on planet Earth who have no clue who Donald Trump is. If he strolled into some some native village in South America, um, he is more likely to be killed than yeah. you know worshipped uh, because they have no idea who he is. He's no one special, and so uh, I, I really do think if we understand, you know, if we understand how finite our lives are and how small my life is in in comparison to the scale of the gospel and in the scale of eternity and it really does make it so much easier and i think i think back to your point that is a it's a daily habit we have to have to w- try to walk in humility and say um um okay you know i've, I've mentioned this before but like i want to lead from a position of brokenness every single day where I'm not leading from a position of authority. Like I'm the boss, I'm the pastor, I'm the husband, I'm the dad. So I've got this authority and I'm, so you got to do what I say, but really lead from a position of brokenness where I understand that, um, that I don't have it all figured out, that I've got my own issues and my own baggage. And so no matter who I'm leading, it helps me lead more pastorally when I understand that and less from a position of I deserve this or I, you know, I'm very important. You know who I am or my green room's not ready. Um, that kind of stuff drives me insane (laughs) 
because we fundamentally have lost the point that Jesus said, hey, even the Son of Man came to serve and not be served and to give his life as a ransom for many. There's a really interesting juxtaposition between King Solomon and Jesus Christ here because Mm -hmm. you have King Solomon and Jesus makes this point of King Solomon, which Mm -hmm. is so cool because you have King Solomon in all his glory, the wisest, richest king to ever live, who will ever live. And most people in the present moment don't know who Solomon is Correct. as right. compared to Jesus who did ministry for like three years in a dusty part of the world. Mm-hmm. Right. But like, so th- that's crazy to think about. And yeah. that it is a good reminder of, of, uh, the, the finitude of, mm-hmm. you know, the gravity behind our reputations right. and these kinds of things. Well, and, and scripture <clears throat> points out that Solomon took twice as long to build his, um, his house than he did to build the house of God. Um, and so that's, I think that's just a good reminder for us. Like whose house are we building and whose legacy are we building and right. what are we really trying to achieve? Uh, that's ultimately going to last because I, I told somebody the other day, and I don't mean this with any kind of false humility, but six months after I leave summit or after I die, I'm not the pastor of summit anymore. There's a whole bunch of people who aren't going to remember who I am or they're going to remember who I am, but <laughs> they're going to move on and they're going to be just fine. And I, again, I think it's really important for us to remember we are stewards. We are not yeah. owners. We steward our congregations. We steward our calling. We steward our families. We steward our, our staff, any, any of the things we have, we are stewarding those things right. for God and for his glory and that we don't own them. They don't belong to us. We've got to hold on to them loosely. Yeah. And I, I'm, you know, we we're kind of talking around and circling around uh, our practices as individuals, how we can guard against that. Mm-hmm. And certainly I think that's important, but I did want to kind of bring up some corporate practices as well to help our people guard against it. Part of our role as pastors is to speak with a prophetic voice. And what you see with the prophets over and over again, whether it's in Judges or in other parts of Israel's history, is that they were to point the people back to God to speak a warning about what happens when we stray away, what happens when we allow these things to to compete for our affection for, for God, what happens when we exalt something else other than God, is that we lose the very blessing that God promised we would have if we followed Him, that it, it becomes for us a curse, it becomes for us, you know, and so our role as, as leaders and as pastors is always to continually point back to Jesus, to our need for Him, for the necessity of the gospel, for... Uh, that uh, that current in in the world and and in our sinful nature that pushes us away from uh, submission to the lordship of Christ and toward other things, you know. So we have to speak with that kind of voice continually, uh, and in to help us guard against it as a as a body. I love the point of maintaining a sense of urgency as a way of handling prosperity well and staying hungry. This is one of the reasons why I spend so much time looking at things like existential threats and like things that people don't want to think about. And people say sometimes like, where's your joy? You know, you just spend all this time thinking about these things and the horrors of the world and all of this. But I think that actually puts some language to it because I haven't been able to explain why exactly that is. But Mm -hmm. I think it's because I'm afraid that if I if I look back, I'll turn into a pillar of salt kind Mm -hmm. of like if I if I rest on on prosperity and how good some parts of life are, 
that I'll lose that sense of urgency and I'll, I won't be hungry anymore. Mm-hmm. And so I'm certain that there's probably a, a balance and a proper way to do that to where you can, you know, uh, participate in the good things of life, <laughs> <laughs> you know, without lose, without becoming, you know, uh, losing your sense of urgency. Um, I don't know if you guys have anything to say to that or if, but I just wanted to highlight that point of if you're struggling with prosperity, causing you to uh, maybe turn into somebody you don't want to be that a sense of urgency can be a remedy for that i think yeah uh the, the thing that comes to mind immediately for me is the the proverbs where it says you know that a merry heart is like medicine right so so there's a sense in which that kind of joy and enjoyment of life is is uh well it's it's healing for us right it's um, I can't, the, the word is escaping me, but it, it's profitable for us. And if we are people whose hope is in Christ, right, we know that that there's never any reason for us to lose hope. And so we should be people that are filled with joy and that are uh, people who enjoy life while at the same time recognizing that sin is wreaking havoc in our world and that that is not God's intent or design or purpose and that we should be uh, grieved by it in the same way that God is. Yeah, so it shouldn't be the kind of joy that causes you to suspend reality and to forget about the sin and the mm-hmm. evils of the world. And this is one of the reasons why I think, like, when Christ says, um, you know, in this world you'll face many troubles, but take heart because I have overcome the world. That's the joy. Yeah. So if we take take heart and we have joy in the fact that Jesus has overcome the world, then we can still look at the world for what it is, right. and we don't lose sight of it but we can have that sense of joy as well in, in the, in the face of it. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's all very good. Okay. So this next one, um, is a bit ethereal. Um, (laughs) but I think that there's an important point to be made within here. So we'll try to unpack it. I want to do a, a, a thought exercise that will lead uh, to a question. So if you were in the crowd calling for Christ's crucifixion, or if you were one of the soldiers mocking him or Pilate giving him up, et cetera, if you were in that moment, you would think that you're the one doing it. You would also think that you're observing a specific kind of event predicated on your own interpretation of what's unfolding in front of you. So for instance, you might think this is the capital punishment of a blasphemer or a revolutionary. But before it even happens, we know because we have the advantage of scripture and time and hindsight and all of this, before it even happened, in Gethsemane, Christ explicitly calls it God's will. And we ourselves, like I said, with the advantage of hindsight, we attribute the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus solely to God as the culmination of his work of salvation. Okay, so what was actually happening in that moment wasn't capital punishment, wasn't the capital punishment of a revolutionary, and it wasn't founded on the agency of the, of the perpetrators. Okay, so it wasn't that thing at all. What we would have thought it was if we were in that moment, it actually was something way different that was, actually, that was, that was happening. So I think this co-opting of God's sovereignty by human agency parallels Joseph's story with his brothers thinking they're doing something when God is actually doing something so vastly different that they cannot even conceive of it in their minds. So we often hear Joseph's story uh, preached as if God was simply redeeming what his, bro- his brothers meant for evil, like his, their evil choices. But, but God's design for this occurrence is, once again, revealed to us well before it even takes place. 
It's, it's what Joseph's dream was about. Joseph's dream is about that. And it's interesting because it's actually the dream itself that, that sparks the, the choice of the brothers to do it. Um, so who was really in control in that moment? Whose plan was Joseph's story really about? So I think that within this idea of these, these events happening, and if you're in the moment, you think one thing's happening when it's mm-hmm. actually something way different. I think there's a theodicy in that that explains history's most evil occurrences. So we think that a given atrocity is orchestrated by the wickedness of men, and we conclude mm-hmm. that the nature of the event in its totality is destructive and evil. But as evidenced by the story of Christ's passion of the crucifixion um, and Joseph's story, and I think many other testaments in scripture, from our point on the timeline, how can we be sure we even have a remotely accurate understanding of what we're observing? And how should pastors try to make sense of the world around us when so much of it is veiled in mystery? So, so that, yep. have, have we, have you, I, that was a long, so yep. I want to make sure that we're all on the same page here. Yeah. We, we know from scripture that Joseph's story was God's will. Like, that's why he has the dream, right? Like, am I taking too much liberty in saying that? And then we know from the mouth of Christ that Mm -hmm. the crucifixion is God's Mm -hmm. will. So we know that something is happening there that is being orchestrated by the sovereignty of God. But the people who are doing it, who are living in that moment, think that they are doing something completely different. Because they are. Yes, but but okay, but <laughs> so here's where I'm gonna here's where I'm gonna diverge from from your line of reasoning. Okay, what you said was, uh, and we'll go back and so, uh, you you would think that you're the one doing it. Uh, that's because you are the one doing it. It is both and. So when you said um, about the, you said phenomenologically it wasn't the capital punishment of a revolutionary and it wasn't founded on the agency of the perpetrators. And I would say it is the capital punishment of a revolutionary and more, right? It's not either or, it's both and. And so intention matters here, right? Uh, They intended to punish what they believed was a revolutionary. They intended to crucify what they saw as a heretic who had claimed to be God. They intended, so, so intention matters, right? Because, because if it didn't, then, then God would be unjust in judging us on those intentions. Just because God has the ability to take my evil intentions and turn them into something good does not negate my intent. It does not negate the wickedness of my heart. And so it's both and. It is an absolute grace and mercy of God that he is able to take our wicked intentions and turn them into something that brings honor and glory to him. Turn them into something that brings salvation. Turn them into something that rescues rather than destroys. But it doesn't negate the wickedness of my heart. So separating... um separating from the, the free will issue here, because, well, we could, we could ask the question of whether or not God's turning that into a good thing in response to something that we've started. But I think that we... I don't think it matters. Because I can't, I can't experience life in any other way than what I experience it. Lived life in this body is reality for us. And we're never going to 
resolve the tension between the fact that God knew all of it beforehand and my agency in this moment matters. We can't. So the, the yeah, so the I, I get what you're saying and I I right, I don't want to fly off into the ether too far on that. Um, the most practical part of this question, I think that is is really the it matters how we answer this. How do we interpret events that are unfolding around us if they can if the reality of the event can be so radically different from what we think it is based on the information we have access to because even if we were a bystander in christ's crucifixion we're thinking that it's something that it's not and so maybe we don't like like we have to be a part of the sense-making apparatus right Mm -hmm. and so, so what is the personality that one should adopt when trying to make sense of events that are unfolding, knowing that yeah. they can be not only just a little different, like it's it's not only just a little different. This is the worst. Uh, this is the worst day on earth. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ mm-hmm. is the wor- the worst thing that could possibly happen. But it, then it turns into the best news that the world has ever heard. Like it's it's actually right. the opposites. And so, as we go through life, but pastoring, is it opposite? Is it opposite? I mean, the fact that the wickedness of our hearts is such that we would crucify, that we would kill God, right? That's a terrible day for humanity, no matter how you slice it. And it is more, right? So again, I, I, think, I think the argument that you're making it is that it is either or. And I think what Scripture holds out to us is that it is both and. The tragedies of the world are tragedies, and God is working in them to accomplish his purpose. And, and it's both and, always and every time. And, and so that's how, going back to the question on hope, how do we hold hope? Well, because we know that this reality, it is, it is what it is, and it grieves the heart of God, and it should grieve the heart of every person who follows Christ. And God is working in it in ways that I do not perceive. So I think we have to hold them together. It has to be a both and. Because when it's an either or, we can never reconcile what's happening. Uh, and and so, the, so then we're left with these unanswerable questions. Yeah, so I'll, I'll, I'll put a, a more specifics on it. So Peter, I think, makes the mistake that I'm trying to figure out how, as pastors, you can avoid making. So mm-hmm. Peter tries to intervene, essentially, um, and he doesn't want Christ to be crucified. And Christ's response to that is, get behind me, Satan. Uh-huh. Like he's that far wrong that he's speaking from the spirit of Satan, well, effectively. Sure. And so is it an exercise in futility to try to get things right as they're happening? I mean, maybe it is. If it is, maybe that's just the answer. In, in which case we <laughs> err on the side of mercy and humility. Like, but but sometimes God indeed calls us to act. In fact, I think there is an action that God calls us to in every situation. Peter just chose the wrong one, right? There was a response that would have been the right one yeah. in that moment. But Peter, in his flesh, in his limitation, in his chose the wrong one, yeah. and and we do too, right? I mean, we we can't divorce ourselves from Peter and go, I mean, you know, idiot. Mm-hmm. Right, we're the we play the fool sometimes too, but I think there's always a response, and our 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 challenge and our calling is to seek the face of God, 
to, to know the heart of God, to, to do our best every day to surrender and submit every part of ourselves so that when those moments come, we respond accordingly. Uh, and when we don't, we repent and we default to the sovereignty of God and say, God, I'm thankful that even, even when I blow it, you're still in control. Yeah. An, an example, I think, of, in Scripture of someone who, who did it right would be, um, what's coming to mind would be like the Roman centurion, for example. Because so this is a man who occupies a high station in the Roman military, and he meets Jesus, who's, you know, this lowly, nomadic Jew, but he doesn't speak to him that way. Like he, he asks for healing of his servant. And when Christ offers to come heal the servant, he says, no, 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 I'm not worthy for you to enter into my house. And so he's starting from a place of, of humility and he's starting from a place of a kind of radical faithfulness because he know he, he knows that Jesus can heal mm-hmm. his servant who is paralyzed, I believe. And so that would have been like a hard healing to pull off. Like the physicians wouldn't be able to do it, but he doesn't seem to have any doubt whenever he's asking Christ about this. And so he has faithfulness and he has humility in that interaction. And because of that, even though he doesn't know who Jesus is, like he hasn't, he, he doesn't have the advantage of hindsight. He happens to land on the right stone with yeah. the reality of who Christ is just simply because he approaches him with humility and faithfulness. So maybe that's the ticket. I think that's probably the key. Uh, to this whole thing because we can get really really deep into the the philosophical weeds on this right but i think what it really does come back to is having enough humility to understand that god is is sovereign um that god has got a plan that is probably bigger than what i can understand and and when i simply trust what i see and feel and smell and hear with my senses that's probably insufficient. Um, there's probably a, a bigger story being told, something else going on. And back to Todd's point, I, I do think we're going to take action at times that we think is spirit-led that we're going to find out later, nope, that was dumb. I, I was behaving in a way that was led by my senses or my feelings or my pride or whatever it was. Yeah. But I think... I think as long as we approach things with humility and go, God, I think this is what you want, but if if not, I'm grateful that you're gonna scoop me up off the pavement when I fall. Um, that's the Roman centurion. That's you know, because um, he acted contrary to what his senses said he should, because his rank, his all these things said he shouldn't have behaved that way, but. Um, but he humbled himself and ultimately was able to, like you said, land on the right stone, do the right thing. Yeah. And so I think we can get really, really, really <clears throat> lost in the philosophy of it. And I think for me as a pastor, what I want to do is just help our people understand, hey, we live, we live humbly, um, walk in humility, and understand that God's ways are so much higher than our ways, we can't begin to understand them. Um, and with like with my girls, my girls are 18 and 21, and they know me really, really well. And they will still do things that are contrary <laughs> to who I am or my values or our house rules or whatever at times. And they go, well, I thought, and it's like, nope, 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 you know. Um, and so if that happens in my house with something as simple as my my uh, house rules or you know whatever it is how much 
more likely are we to do that with a, mm-hmm. a cosmic God who is infinite and so it's going to happen at times, and mm-hmm. I think the key is just uh, how we approach it and how we come out of it on the other side when we yeah. mess up. Yeah, and I think it's interesting, too, that we approach this a lot of times, and we talk about it, and it feels like it's such a conundrum, but Paul talks about it as if it is the pathway to freedom, mm-hmm. right? Uh, in Galatians, when he talks about those who are slaves to the law, and then he talks about the Gentiles who were who were slaves to these, uh, you know, man-made gods and all these kinds of things, and how that it, you know, the, Jesus calls us out of both of those places into a trusting in Him, and that doesn't mean that that there isn't a, a pathway for us to follow. That doesn't mean there aren't choices for us to make. It doesn't mean that there aren't actions for us to take if we're talking in those terms. But we can do all of that knowing that, look, at the end of the day, this doesn't all yeah. rest on me. Yeah. So while, while I have been called to act, I can live in the freedom of knowing that even when I blow it, God's got it. Yeah, so it's liberating to know that even if you're a disciple of Christ who abandons him because you think he's being crucified and the entire movement is over, that that doesn't affect the outcome of the gospel. And that not only does it not affect the outcome of the gospel, but in Peter's case, and well, and, and the rest of them too, like you're going to have a chance to get back on the train once you yeah. see where the train is. And so there's a there's a proper analogy here to, um, like Mel, you said a couple weeks ago from stage that no matter what happens, we are not closing church. Like even if it's a zombie apocalypse, we are not closing mm-hmm. church. And so that's a a change from where I think virtually all churches were uh, leading up to COVID. Mm -hmm. And so would you want to, would you talk about like, is that conviction coming from, okay, I'm going to adhere to this principle of I'm just not closing church no matter what, or is it like, uh, or is it a combination with um, seeing that COVID looked like something that it ended up not being and then You've, did you feel convicted for closing? Because I'm not going to sit sit here and say that I thought it was a the I thought it was absolutely the right idea to shut down. Yeah, um, and I was in full support of all of that at the time. Um, so what's behind the motivation to say, okay, we're drawing our line in the sand here, mm-hmm. and even if it actually is a bad pandemic, we're not closing. Yeah. Um, so I, I told. I mean, I had conversations with a number of people who left our church during COVID. Um, because they were unhappy with the fact that we closed for, I don't know, seven weeks or whatever the, whatever it was, um, nine, I don't remember now, but, um, but we closed our doors. We had virtual services, you know, like a lot of churches did. And what I've told them is, um, based on the information I had at the time, uh, I would have made the same decision again based on that information, but we have more information now than we did then, <laughs> mm-hmm. thankfully. And the information in hindsight, we say, eh, probably we shouldn't have closed our doors. It was COVID dangerous to some people specifically. Absolutely. It was, was it dangerous to everyone? No, it wasn't. So in hindsight, with the information I have now, my experience tells me, Hey, I'm not going to make that same mistake again. I'm going to make a whole nother mistake at some point, but it's not going to be that mistake. (laughs) So that's, that's why, you know, and and I, we talk about it in terms of weather. So we get a lot of bad weather in this part of the country. And, um, when I first came to summit in 2014, we, 
you know, I was kind of leaning on our board a little bit and the board said, Oh, bad weather. We probably need to cancel. All right. I guess we need to cancel. And after we did that a couple of times, so we're not canceling anymore. And if people can't come to church because they can't get out of their driveway, then they should stay home. But we're not canceling church. I don't want anybody to have to figure out, like, look on the website or, yeah. you know, follow, get on social media or call the office or try to sleuth around and figure out if we're having church. We are having church on the weekend. The weather's not going to keep that from happening. And so really what we did is we just applied the same standard across the board. And we said, no matter what happens, we're having church on the weekend. I even made the joke and I said, and if uh, if the rapture happens, then Pastor Dick Motzing will be <laughs> doing the service that weekend. So, um, but um, but for me, it was less about like a biblical conviction about one thing or the other. It was more about, hey, I learned something in that experience, and that the thing I learned said, I would rather default. I would rather get it wrong and keep the church open than get it wrong the way I did in 2020. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. And I think that a lot of the, not all of them, but I think a lot of the churches that insisted on staying open at the time were doing it for the wrong reasons. Like it was more of a prideful. <laughs> yes, and, and it they, was, you can pry it from my cold dead hands kind yeah. of. Yeah, 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 right. And that didn't turn out well either. <laughs> right. Because yeah. some of them painted themselves into corners and really exposed some not so good uh, characteristics. So speaking of not so good characteristics, as a leader, do you want your followers to fear you? And I want to know, like, and this we should unpack this why or why not? Because I think there's a lot of nuance here. Because maybe there's a difference between fear and respect. Um, probably. Uh, then maybe there's a difference between when your followers just really respect you, but they don't love you, versus when they love you and they respect you because they love you. These kinds of things. What has been what has been most uh, fruitful for you in your leadership? Well, um, I'll, I'll just start by saying I've patterned my entire pastoral ministry on the leadership of Michael Corleone. <laughs> and yeah, it's a good move. It's a good move. I like that. All I thought you were going to say Michael Scott. <laughs> that might be just as good. Uh, do, I, do I want them to love me or fear me? I want them to love me so much that it scares them. I think that's what the line is, something like that. Yeah. yeah all of your naysayers just go missing and then you don't have any naysayers. <laughs> well, I'm going to make a money off your camera fuse. I can't think of the name of the horse. Anyway, go ahead. Oh yeah. Oh no. <laughs> we can edit it in and post. It's okay. Um, th that's tough. Uh, I don't think any good leader would say they want people to fear them. And I don't think it's fear in like, you know, I was out of the office for a couple weeks when I was in Greece and, um, and, I, I'm thousand percent confident that our staff worked really hard while I was gone, that they didn't vacate their posts, that they didn't, you know, they weren't all just taking a deep breath. Like, thank God Mel's not here. Like <laughs> I can work now, you know? Um, and, and so nobody wants, wants their team to be afraid of them in a traditional sense of fear. But I think there is something about, you know, the fear of the Lord, um, isn't isn't um, kind of a stereotypical fear like a horror movie or a scary, you know, something like that. But but fear from a biblical perspective is um, understanding who God is and understanding who I am and understanding the authority that God has in our lives. And so I think there is a place for us to have relationships that are deep and intimate and um, and we can be friends because we're I mean, friends with God, but we can mm -hmm. still have this reverence of God and go, okay. 
And so I think there is something to be said for, you know, and Todd, same thing, whether you're a senior pastor or not. I mean, there are people in our church that would say they love you, but they would probably also, you, there would probably be some people too. You would go, I don't know that they actually respect me, you know, but they would yeah. say they love me. And I, there's people like that in my life. They go, oh, you're my pastor. Like, well, I'm not really your pastor because you you listen to me preach on the weekend, but you don't. But you're not submitted to my leadership. You're not submitted to any authority in my life. You don't allow me to speak into you, and that's fine. But, yeah. um, but those are different things entirely. Yeah. So do you think fear sometimes is the low-hanging fruit for a leader because it's harder to make people love you than yes. it is? To, it's harder to cultivate love between, a per, between yes. people than I it think is to cultivate fear. Well, that goes back to what I was saying earlier. Uh, I pray that I want to lead from a position of brokenness. When you're leading a position of authority, that's fear. That's, right. hey, I'm the boss, and I'm going to take something away from you if you don't do what I say. Or I'm going to – there's punishment. You know, there's a stick here that's got your name on it. And – I think it's easy for us to lead from that kind of position, um, whether it's a spiritual authority and there's spiritual abuse or whether it's, um, you know, positional authority as a boss or whatever it is. But I think that's that is like you said, that's a low hanging fruit. That is the easiest, simplest way to lead. It is the least godly way to lead. Right. Yeah. But it's an easy default for a lot of people who are who are. Um, oh, gosh, I'm just going to say like weak character I really do believe yeah yeah and I think that there's and I, I think that the care the the character in the heart of the leader determines whether this is the case but I think that there are two different kind of pathways for fear there's a fear that leads to intimidation mm-hmm. and there's a fear that leads to honor mm-hmm. right and that I think rises and falls on the character of the leader if I am a, a leader who wields my authority as a weapon, that will be a fear that leads to intimidation. Mm-hmm. My, my people will be afraid of me and my, my reactions, my temper, my whatever. Uh, and then there is a fear that leads to honor, which means that they, people understand the power that resides in the seat of authority. Mm-hmm. But because the leader wields that authority in ways that are life-giving and in ways that call people higher and in ways that honor Christ, that is a fear then that leads to honor. Mm-hmm. We honor leaders who do that. We want to follow leaders who do that. I mean, it's it's no, I mean, it's exemplified so perfectly in Christ, right? And so I think that that's maybe something that we can use to differentiate and understand as a leader, how am I, am I doing a good job here? Because if, if my leadership is a fear that leads to intimidation, then, then I'm probably doing something wrong. Right. But if it's it's a fear that leads to honor, that's, that's God honoring, I think. Yeah. I think that the fear that leads to honor is tightly associated with understanding like is being able to watch a leader lead through very difficult projects and lead a very difficult organization really well. It's kind of, you see this with athletes sometimes like people will say, Oh, you know, I feared Michael Jordan. And the reason like, they're not saying that they were afraid that he was going to like mug them after the game. It's that they were, they had a a respect for Mm -hmm. what this man was able to do and like what he put into his work so that he could master it at such a high level. And so I think you can cultivate that sense of respect simply see people i think sometimes people think oh well whether or not people respect me will depend on whether or not i demand respect from them and so they think it's like a lateral thing between them and their subordinates but Mm -hmm. i actually think that it's more about how you handle your own leadership 
And like, if you handle that well, mm -hmm. and it's actually in the job you're doing is really hard and they know it's really hard and they see you do it well, that leads to a sense of respect and honor and that kind of that good kind of fear. Well, and I'll, and I'll say this too. Um, you know, when I was young, I was afraid of my dad because he was going to punish me if I was stupid. And, um, you know, even up to the time he passed away, my dad was not going to whoop me, you know, <laughs> I'm 40 or I was 40 and, you know, he was not going to bend me over his knee and just, you know, um, wear my rear end out with a, with a belt. It's a good old Southern. <laughs> that is true. Um, it was not the case at all, but I still had a fear of my dad and it wasn't a fear that he was going to punish me. It was a fear of, um, of letting him down. Mm -hmm. It was a fear of disappointment because the worst thing my dad could say to me was, I'm so disappointed with you. Like I had a set of expectations. I, I expect you to do this, man, you're my son and I'm disappointed with you. And, um, and so for me, that was born out of love though. Uh, you know, honor, respect, all these things that I just loved him so much. I didn't want to dis, um, disrespect him by, disappointing him or, you know, dishonor him by disappointing him. And so, um, I really do think there's something to that. And I think it's, it's hard to pinpoint where honor and respect and fear and love and all these things co-mingle together. Um, but I, I do think it comes back to, um, pastors, uh, I mean, shepherds smelling like their sheep, you know, and being with their people. And cause you're not going to be loved or respected if you're not, if you're not pastoring and shepherding and, you know, with your people, with your team, whatever it is. So I think that's part of it for sure. Yeah. And I think that maybe that fear of disappointing a person you love is like, you don't want to invalidate all of the sacrifices you know that they made. Mm -hmm. Because I think part of being a, a leader who is loved by his followers is making sacrifices and like mm -hmm. leading from the front kind of. Mm -hmm. um, and when you see someone do that and you see someone put their own neck on the line all the time, you don't want to, you don't want to be the guy, like no one wants to be the guy who trips, falls and breaks the Mona Lisa. You know, like they don't want to be that guy who's like all this effort and time and preservation has gone into this <laughs> and you're the guy who knocked over the statue that Michelangelo mm -hmm. carved when he was 23 and has lasted for, you know, however much time. Um, and so, yeah, I think there's some there's something there. Let's talk a little bit more about uh, why it's a bad thing for a leader to take that low hanging fruit of fear, because I actually do think this is super tempting. Um, and I think that if we kind of highlight why it's a bad idea, it might work as a cautionary tale for people who might be thinking about this, because it's, it's especially tempting in pathological organizations, mm -hmm. like where the people under you are also of, of mm -hmm. ill character. Yeah. Um, then I think it becomes more tempting. But one reason I think is, and Stalin had this problem. Um, if you are just intimidating everyone around you, then no one will tell you the truth anymore. And you right. end up in this feedback loop of lies because everyone's so afraid of you that they don't want to give you mm -hmm. correct information. Mm -hmm. They don't want to tell you what you want to hear. And so then your compass is completely off. And so your ability to lead is completely off. So that's just one example. Does anything else come to mind in terms of um, the negative effects you've seen with leaders who employ this tactic? Well, look, in terms of church leadership, um, people can just leave, mm -hmm. right? So if you're a kind of leader who's leading with intimidation and leading through that kind of fear and that kind of thing, uh, people just stop following you, you know? So if you want to like implode your church, 
lead, lead like that, you know? Well, that's probably a good litmus test for you too. If you're not, because a lot of leaders don't recognize that they're doing that. Yeah, they think, man, I'm healthy. I love Jesus. I'm doing this. I'm killing this. These people are crazy. But I would say, if you have high turnover on your staff, or high turnover with your leaders, or high turnover in your church, that's where you you might need to take a second look at yourself and go, hey. Uh, is this? Is there something about me that's causing this? Yeah. Because um, there's a good chance there is. And not only that, th- that is the way in which the world wields power. Mm-hmm. And if there's anything, I say anything, one of the things that is clear in Scripture is that the way we wield power as <laughs> in the kingdom of God is different than the way the world wields power. Yeah. Among you, it will be different. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, it, it's easy to do that, though, especially if it's if you've come into an unhealthy organization. If it's easy to just go, okay, you people, you know, this is mm-hmm. how it's going to be. And and I think there's a way you can lead with strength without being a bully. Um, and I think it's kind of threading a needle, but um, I think you still default to love. You still default to honor. You know, you do your best, but... Um, but you can be a strong leader without being a bully. And if you're in a difficult position, maybe you inherited a hard, a, a challenging board or, you know, different difficult circumstances in a church, especially it's easy to come in and be really heavy handed and, you know, um, but you gotta be careful about that. Um, cause sometimes what ends up happening is they, they match your force, you know, depending on the yeah, board or yeah. the people or whatever it is. So yeah. um, you got to be careful about that too. Yeah. And I think that when, you know, you're doing it right and you're the, if you've inspired people to love you, um, then it kind of decentralizes the motive power of the organization too. Like, you know, when, like you said, when you're gone, you know, that, that the people who work for you are still working as hard as they can. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's actually, from a just a pure product productive standpoint that's advantageous but it's also you know i think it's the durability too like people will look out for you like you know every now and then we have like you know situations where um you know if there's if if it's not a one-to-one crystal clear understanding of something that's going on and then you know we try to help people understand what's going on and and I, i think i'm trying to use the right language there um, that comes naturally to people, to followers who love their leader. Like they, mm-hmm. they want to, they want people to give the most charitable interpretation of a situation to the leader mm-hmm. just naturally. And so there's less of a issue there. There's, there's no, there's less, there's no backbiting. There's less backbiting and that kind mm-hmm. of thing that happens that I think is all really unhealthy. And yeah. So I think it's probably a good place to land it. Um, we hit, several uh different areas i think that uh, <laughs> yeah we did Indeed and we did. The, the elephant man has some puffiness around his eyes too so that's an understatement for you michael <laughs> yeah all right well thank you guys for listening to the back 40 leadership podcast we will see you in the next episode if you enjoy this content please let us know by rating and reviewing the podcast you can also contact us at summitpodcasts.church Remember to share this episode with your friends and on social media. Summit Podcasts can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, we're there. Thank you for listening to the Back 40 Leadership Podcast, and we will see you in the next episode.